hello dear listeners we have a request of you this week if you listen to us every week and you like the show and you think it's good please tell your friends about it because we want other people to listen too and not even they don't even have to be russophiles 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 they don't even have to be russophiles they can just be your average run-of-the-mill person and we're trying to make a show that appeals to a wider group than people that are already interested in Russia. We want to bring Russia to the masses. Sort of, sort of. Tell your friends who you have evidence that they take your opinion when you recommend a piece of media to them and actually listen. And also post on social media because people are there on social media. Don't be shy is what we're trying to say. If you're listening, we really really appreciate that and it would be we would really really appreciate it if you would if you would just like tell other people that you know that that you think might enjoy our banter and our I not able to finish a sentence. <laughs> Do you like people not finishing sentences? Do you want to hear about vaginas? Do you like people hysterically laughing at their own jokes? <laughs> Do you? Listen to She's in Russia. All right, and now to the show. You want to tell me what's going on in Russia? Yeah, fuck. Today, the day that we're recording right now is October 7th. And this date is a couple of things. Number one, it's Smith's dad's birthday. Number two, it is uh, a day of protests all over Russia. And thirdly, it is Putin's birthday. Alexei Navalny, who, as you may or may not know, is the leading opposition figure in Russian politics at the moment. He called the, for these protests to be on October 7th, probably symbolically because it's Putin's birthday. So that's, yeah, that's no coincidence. The protests are happening right now. It's 8 p.m. right now, Moscow time, and they started in St. Petersburg at 6 p.m. But these protests are taking place today, October 7th, all over Russia in 80 cities. There's just a couple of comments to make. Basically, Alex, uh, Alexei, <laughs> Navalny is currently under arrest for encouraging or initiating protests that were unsanctioned. What do you call them? Not sanctioned? Yeah, like like the government said, no, you can't do this protest. And he was like, we're doing it. So anyway, he's arrested. But like basically, like his goal is to run for president in 2018. And he has opened basically like campaign headquarters across Russia. All of these protests are taking place in cities where he's opened headquarters. A lot of times the protests that he calls are sort of like there's been anti-corruption ones, the big ones we've heard about this year. There's been sort of like a general anti-Putin sentiment. But this particular one, this particular protest today is about allowing Navalny to run for president specifically. So it's like pro-Navalny for president in 2018 because right now basically he can't run because of some like made up charges that were brought against him um he's like technically not eligible to run but according to him he is eligible and etc i don't know i just have like mixed feelings right now because the protest is like currently taking place even though like the official navalny people like the navalny twitter all the like local headquarters they tweeted just like i don't know 20 minutes ago or so that like the protest is over like thank you everyone for coming out but people in saint petersburg and in moscow are still out and like people in moscow said they're gonna stay overnight and people in petersburg have marched from like the place where it started marsfield to a different open square they were chanting like putin's a thief or something and on the man's birthday on the man's birthday so i just i feel like something oh the other thing about this protest that like is notable is that 
Um, on June 12th, there was a protest that got a lot of like international media attention where a lot of people were arrested also across um, Russia. Since then, apparently, like the Russian police forces, local police forces have been, and probably also like riot police and other whatever, the people that they deploy for these kinds of things, have been like training specifically to like kind of like prepare for more of a crackdown and have been like openly like if they're unsanctioned protests we will stop them basically you know with force so people were on Facebook and stuff before today were like talking about that openly just like this particular protest if you're gonna go like be really prepared this wonderful activist who will soon be on our show wrote like a checklist of things that you should bring to the protest in case you're arrested because like there's a high chance of arrest in this particular one this is the meat of the podcast <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah. yeah, 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 This shit feel like I won't ever make it home. Graphics backed up, I got to get off of this road. Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone. You're listening to She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm in Brooklyn now, back in good old Brooklyn. I'm Lily, and I'm back in St. Petersburg after our lovely vacation together. I'm your little girl soccer teammate. That asshole put his dick into my little girl soccer teammate. (laughs) Maybe this is a good time for us to do a little plug for Turkish Airlines. So yes, PSA, if you ever have the opportunity to fly Turkish Air, we highly recommend it. The real point here is the warm bun. <laughs> I, think, I think you know what I'm talking about, Smith, don't you? <laughs> what? Yes. Can you describe the, the joy of the warm bun on a flight? <laughs> Let me see if I can communicate it properly. Basically, with every meal, the meal itself is pretty good, and then with every meal, you get a bun that is warmed, and the bun itself is, like, high-quality bread. Like, it has actual, like, flavor to it. Right. And they bring you a warm bu- bun, and then there's butter, and you get to spread your butter on the warm bun, and it melts. I think they do this <laughs> trick in order to, like, the, the people who know the bun is coming, they don't necessarily give it to you right away. And then, so the, so the flight attendant will, like, serve you your hot <laughs> meal. people that and like on the second flight the person served us the hot meal and then she just started walking away and i was like oh fuck i guess no bun on this one because it's like a shorter flight or something no warm bun and i was like i was like ready to give up on it and then like maybe like a minute or two later she comes back down the aisle and it's like oh i forgot to give you this and just like (laughs) and lily turns and goes i knew the warm bun was coming (laughs) I knew. Yeah. But what I was really going to say is that a man who is sitting kind of across the aisle. So your tray comes with a butter pocket and a jam. It's called the packet, you idiot. (laughs) To put on your warm bun. But the warm buns hadn't come yet. And I guess the man didn't know. He didn't know. (laughs) And so he just ate his butter plate. Wait, I have so 
such a vivid image of that. We look across the aisle. The man is kind of hunched over his tiny little plastic butter, you know, packet thing, and he's just scooping the butter, spooning it into his mouth. Just <laughs> All right, so, um, Simidi. PSA completed. Yes. Why don't you describe what we're doing? As Lily, I think, may have said earlier, we're going to focus in on the first year of Putin's presidency, and we're kind of doing a variety show with it. It's a themed variety show. And we're going to play a bunch of clips and read some articles and just try to, from those, like piece together what the sense of him from the American standpoint was at that time. So the first thing we're going to be listening to is just a clip from ABC announcing that Putin has been elected, and, and this was in 2000. In Russia today, the clear winner of the Russian presidential election, Vladimir Putin, began to establish the Putin era. Vladimir Putin, the career spy, talks about establishing what he calls a dictatorship of the law, fight corrupt bureaucrats, and strengthen the central government. I feel like that pretty much sums sums up the entire show. They're just being like, okay, so when we think of Putin at this time in 2000, we, the media and like sort of mainstream thought, we think about him like cracking down on these corrupt oligarchs, reforming this economy that we ruined by putting Yeltsin into prison, but whatever. But yeah. Now I'm just going to read real quickly the opening paragraph of an article from the New York Times that was published on October 8th, 2000 by Sir John Lloyd. So this is a few months. This is like, what, six months after he's elected? Yeah, yeah. Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, looked down the gorgeous hall in the Kremlin of which he was now master. Seated before him on a muggy summer day were some 30 men who represented the better part of Russia's capitalist class. They were known as oligarchs, from the Greek-derived oligarchy, meaning rule of the few. In the Yeltsin era of the 1990s, so much power passed into their hands that the world had fit them like a glove. Putin, a diminutive man who had made lieutenant colonel in the KGB, was here to tell them that their rule was over. That kind of writing makes me want to vomit. I know, I know. It's so ridiculous. God, all we can say is, first of all, that's in the New York Times. I don't think that much has changed. It's funny that he says diminutive. Yeah. He's he's short. He's diminutive. I just want to he's talk small. about it. He's small but mighty. He's small but he's now the master of his domain. Feudal kingdom. <laughs> Thank you, Lloyd. Bye. Bye. Okay, so do you want to read your thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is from January 2000. So this is like before he's elected. Boris Yeltsin resigned and like assigned the future presidency basically or like appointed Putin as his um successor successor yeah kind of on new year's 1999 so this is just a couple days after that happened so that was kind of like this big shock and that made also it made the election happen earlier i mean there are a lot of things about that sort of move that was strategic so this little shrimpy guy who no one knows like gets on oh so there's this tradition on new year's eve when like russians everyone has their tv on like approaching midnight which we also do because the ball drops but they're not waiting for the ball to drop they're waiting for the president to come on and say something the president gives a statement every new year's eve so yeltsin comes on resigns and that's like a really weird emotional speech that i'm not going to get into and then a couple days later um the new york times publishes this article (laughs) sounds like that's like an event but it's obviously not I just mean, like, that's the context of this article. And this article is called What Putin's Rule Portends for Russia. And I'm just going to skip the intro and get down to the meat of it. 
Mr. Sobchak, who recruited Mr. Putin to a team of economic experts when he was St. Petersburg reformist mayor in the early 1990s, said he expects Mr. Putin to follow the example of two American presidents, Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who amassed state power over the government and economy to shape the capitalistic system that exists today. Theodore Roosevelt took on entrenched monopolies, helped small businesses to thrive and competition to flourish. Franklin Roosevelt reworked the federal government to aid the poor, improve education, and create a less cash-prone financial system. Quote, his decisive interference in the economy during the Depression saved America, Mr. Subchak said of Franklin Roosevelt. Quote, I think Putin has a wonderful opportunity to become for Russia what the Roosevelts are for America. And if he does this, he'll become the great president in the history of the country. Aww. They worked together. Subchak did hire Putin and Putin worked with him in St. Petersburg. And they're here like in this article just like being the only sources of information being like I'm going to be like the Roosevelts. All right. So let's move on to the the brief Clinton period. So I feel like it's worth noting here if people don't already know, but like Boris Yeltsin and Clinton had like a really buddy-buddy relationship. Chummy. Chums. They were pals. pals. The Boris and Bill show. And then, yeah, Boris resigns and taps Putin as his replacement. We keep saying that, but like Putin was then elected. I mean, there are, yeah, there's like, yeah, yeah. he didn't just become president right, on right. January 1st, right. 2000. He was elected. under certain circumstances elected in March. Yeah. Anyway, let's listen to a clip from All Things Considered in the year 2000 where basically this is right before Clinton and Putin are going to have their Clinton-Putin summit. They're going to meet for the first time since Putin's been elected. Okay. What expectations the Clinton administration has had for this eight-day trip have been centered primarily on the Moscow visit that begins next weekend. It will be the first president-to-president meeting between Mr. Clinton and the newly elected Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Mr. Clinton's meetings with former Russian President Boris Yeltsin produced new reform commitments from the Russian side in exchange for more aid from the U.S. side. But this meeting will be different, says Michael McFall of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This is going to be the kind of endpoint to Clinton's foreign policy vis-a-vis the Russians. And I think, therefore, they're going to try to put things in context. They're going to talk about what the last seven years has meant. And it will be less focused on actual tangibles that he can bring back. Bill Clinton is essentially a lame duck president. Vladimir Putin is still finding his way. And Richard Haas argues that next weekend's meeting should be seen as a conversation between the two leaders and no more. I'm uncomfortable with the term summit, which suggests that the United States and Russia somehow collectively stand astride the world, when the fact is that Russia is irrelevant to much of what goes on in this globalized world. So the image of somehow these two leaders getting together to decide the fate of the world is really something of an anachronism. One important U.S. aim next weekend will be to strengthen Russian democracy. Mr. Clinton will give an interview to an independent radio station in an effort to show U.S. support for a free Russian press. He's also expected to trumpet the importance of democratic values in a speech to the Russian parliament. Michael McFaul says this agenda reflects a U.S. view that economic and foreign policy under Putin are generally headed in the right direction. But I think when it comes to democracy, there's great uncertainty because Mr. Putin, in my opinion, is kind of indifferent to democracy. And so President Clinton uh, wants to go to have a kind of frank discussion about this being 
a precondition of being a normal European country. This emphasis on promoting democracy in Moscow has partially replaced the administration's original goal, which was to produce a grand bargain arms control agreement there. White House officials now say nothing can be worked out at this meeting, given Russian nervousness about U.S. ideas of a new national missile defense. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright this past Friday pointed out that Mr. Clinton and Mr. Putin will meet three more times, suggesting there's still a chance an agreement can be worked out later this year. But Michael McFall says that's unlikely. I think it's kind of worth noting that he says that, like, the first guy interviewed from Carnegie Institute or whatever says, like, Russia is an, a power player. Yeah, it's just like, well, people shouldn't think about it that way because, like, Russia's, like, irrelevant and it's not like these two world powers are meeting and that's, like, this old Cold War view, basically. Like, of the, you know, that's an anachronism. It's just funny because, yeah, sort of the stereotype is that, like, or the, like, basic understanding of Putin's position coming into power in 2000 is that he was, like, yeah, like, I want to make Russia... A global a, power again? A global power, like someone who can compete with other countries. Like, he talks about that economically. Yeah, I mean, but that still isn't the case, but there's somehow, like, optically, they've insinuated themselves in that position. Interesting sentence that you just formulated there. Optically? What do you mean? Like, they're still not an economic power, obviously, but they are, like, maybe not even politically, but I, that's what I mean, optically, like cosmetically or like in the media or like PR wise they do seem to have a global power I mean there's like like we said like there's all these articles where it's like is Putin the most powerful man in the world and like just the concept that Putin could be like orchestrating all the unrest we see in the U.S. is like an indication that we think that Russia is powerful but at this point this guy is saying like oh they're not powerful at all like why are we even meeting with them they're just like a random country that doesn't have any money or political capital uh yeah the next clip is also from this episode of all things considered it's a long one just hang in there but it's interesting they address like sort of the russian perspective of this meeting between clinton and putin with us now to talk more about what President Clinton can expect when he meets Russia's new president is Masha Lipman, deputy editor of Itogi, a weekly news magazine in Russia. She joins us from our Moscow office. Hello, Masha. Hello. Now, Presidents Clinton and Boris Yeltsin always had a great rapport. Their summits were called the Boris and Bill Show. What do you think Clinton can expect when he meets Vladimir Putin? Will it be the villain Vladimir Show? Um, at least it's going to be very, very different indeed from the sort of relationship uh, President Clinton and President Yeltsin uh, used to have in the past. It seems that uh, President Putin is in every way different from President Yeltsin. President Yeltsin um, was this uh, very big, very uh, special character, hardy, big, uh, emotional, unpredictable. Uh, here is uh, President Putin, who is uh, restrained, reserved, always keeps his temper, rarely smiles, and produces an altogether steely, cool look. Putin took over this job New Year's Eve, was elected officially in March. He's not really much of a mystery anymore, I don't think. What changes have you seen since he was elected? Uh, I agree. I don't think he's a mystery anymore. What uh, he seeks to achieve in his presidency is uh, based on a strengthened state, a state that is uh, under his control, unlike the situation that we had under President Yeltsin, to try and implement um, the economic reforms. And when you're talking about the strengthening of the state, you're talking about crackdown on media, on the media empire, which your news magazine is a part of. 
the raid against uh, the offices of uh, the biggest independent media group in Russia have demonstrated that uh, President Putin realizes that uh, independent press has power, that it, it is a force that he cannot ignore. This is a force, in his opinion, that um, hampers his policy. What he did by uh, sending masked people searching uh, mass media offices was a clear act of intimidation. It was portrayed by law enforcement authorities in Moscow as part of some sort of vague uh, criminal investigation, but I don't think too many people in Russia were fooled by this. One of the other things we've known about Putin all along is his war in Chechnya. That's dragging on. Seems to be moving somewhat in the background. We're not hearing as much about it anymore. Do you think the Russians are, are um, prepared to face criticism from Clinton on this? Um, I think the Russians are not prepared because they uh, don't think too much about it, and I don't think they care very much about what President Clinton has got to say. Um, over the past year, anti-American sentiments have grown in Russia, and whenever Russians smell uh, anything that sounds like these Americans are teaching us what to do and what not to do, uh, their first intention, their first instinct is to defy it, uh, to ignore it, to dismiss it, uh, they don't care what, what Americans have to say. Now, President Clinton is a, a lame duck president right now. What, is, what does Putin hope to gain from this? I think to have a summit with uh, the most influential uh, leader in the world is always very important. Putin wants to send a signal, here I am, the leader of a very important, not-to-be-ignored nation, and uh, I, I, I am treated as an equal partner. And uh, moreover, I think uh, what he really cares about is investment from the West. He really seeks to create an image of Russia as a manageable, as compared to President Yeltsin's days, with the economy on the rise, um, a country in which it's good to invest, um, you know, a country which is respected by Western leaders, which is additional reason to invest in this country. And uh, uh, this is the end of his interest in the West, it seems. I don't think he cares a lot if Western leaders or Western public opinion or Western press criticizes his war or criticizes his uh, um, stand on human rights. So Putin is, wants to show that he has a uh, manageable and controlled country. Is, is his crackdown on the regions a, a part of that? Very much so. Over the years of Yeltsin's rule, the state institutions have weakened state functions such as combating crime and corruption, more generally law enforcement, collecting, collecting taxes, so on, um, have been deformed very poorly. And, uh, um, of course, another problem related to weakened state is that Russia's regions, of which we have 89, have generally defied the federal center, regarded, as, uh, regarded it merely as a money donor, squeezing money out of the budget by hoops and crooks and barely ever paying it back. So the task to bring them back under control of uh, Moscow, the, the federal center, is a justified goal. However, um, the way uh, Putin is now doing this, and more importantly, people whom he entrusted with implementing this task for him, raise serious doubts and even alarm. He established an additional tier of management in the country on top of 89 regions that we already have. There will be seven now. He appointed seven men personally loyal to him to rule these seven regions of these seven. 
six are generals. All this is truly alarming. To have army generals and KGB generals to reinstate the rule of law, them being people whom, um, whose uh, adherence to rule of law is at best very doubtful is truly alarming. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. I mean, they cover a lot of to- like important topics, like what Putin's maybe like goals are for having this meeting, and like touch on the sort of like concept of like being a peer with the U.S. Yeah. Not caring. It's interesting that she points out that like he's looking to like he's looking to change the image of Russia specifically to like bring in foreign investment, right. but not so much caring. And also, the Russian people don't so much care like what about, they think of Russia. Yeah, yeah, like Clinton coming in and wagging his finger and being like what are you doing in Chechnya and that's interesting because like I don't know I feel like I mean that's definitely a position that Putin has like carried on like with Crimea and stuff but now he almost uses that like we don't like the we don't care what the West thinks as like a way to curry favor with his supporters right like it's not it's not just oh we don't care and we like genuinely don't care it's like there's some sort of adversarial thing where Claiming to not care what the West thinks or like defying international law is translated as like standing up against American imperialism. Yeah, but I think that that like the beginnings of that are already are already very much present at this time because like he's like I mean she says that like anti-American sentiment is kind of on the rise and even if it wasn't like just the concept. Uh, that people don't want to be told by America like what to do. They don't want America to be like, for 241 years we've been a shining example <laughs> of democracy because you know like they just lived through the the 90s. Bill Clinton like decimates the Russian economy and then comes and wags his finger at them. <laughs> Is it not counterintuitive to think that like your image as a your position on human rights is like related to your like the sort of like attractiveness of investments in your country aren't they related no they're not at all related (laughs) i think that in theory they're related and some people might argue that they are but i think there's probably plenty of counterexamples where america invests in countries who have horrible human rights track records well, I guess I'm just more thinking about like a more kind of like private investor thing, but maybe that's not what he's even talking about. Is that what people are talking about when they talk about investment? Like, I don't know how much money private investors. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they really trying to be like an epicenter for American business? Probably not. So, yeah, maybe they more mean like countries. But... Yeah. I think this clip pr- provides a pretty good segue to the next one, which is like the this concept like oh russians don't care what americans think about like their human rights human rights track record or the war in chechnya because the next clip we have is just a short thing and it's a little bit tangential 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 it's from a presidential debate between bush and gore when they still sat down around a table for presidential debates um in 2000 they make people stand now yeah behind a podium why because it's probably makes for better tv Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's less communal. Like, they're sitting at the same table, like, talking to each other, you know? And now they stand at their, like, separate podiums and, like, yell puppet. No, you're a puppet. You're a puppet. I just think it's, yeah, it's all, this was just the sort of, like... It was a different time. Yeah, but it was just funny to note when we were, like, researching for this episode. Like, I sort of hadn't fully realized that, like, the year that Putin was elected is the same year that Bush was elected. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and listen to that one. 
Yeah, I'm not so sure the role of the United States is to go around the world and say this is the way it's got to be. We can help. And maybe it's just our difference in government, the way we view government. I mean, I want to empower people. I don't, you know, I want to help people help themselves, not have government tell people what to do. I just don't think it's the role of the United States to walk into a country and say, we do it this way, so should you. And I think we can help. And I know we've got to encourage democracy in the marketplaces. But take Russia, for example. We went into Russia. We said, here's some IMF money. And it ended up in Victor Chernomirin's pocket and others. And, and yet we played like there was reform. The only people who are going to reform Russia are Russia. They're going to have to make the decision themselves. Mr. Putin is going to have to make the decision as to whether or not he wants to adhere to rule of law and normal accounting practices so that if countries and or entities invest capital, there's a reasonable rate of return, a way to get the money out of the, out of the economy. But Russia has to make the decision. We can, we can work with them on security matters, for example, but it's their call to make. So I'm not exactly sure where the vice president is coming from, but I think one way for us to end up being uh, viewed as the ugly American is for us to go around the world saying, we do it this way, so should you. Now, we, tr we trust freedom. We know freedom is a powerful, powerful, uh, uh, a powerful force, much bigger than the United States of America, as we saw in recently in the Balkans. But uh, maybe I misunderstand where you're coming from, Mr. Vice President, but I, I, I think the United States must be humble and must be uh, proud and confident of our values, but humble in how we treat nations that are figuring out how to chart their own course. You know, we're just doing our part to normalize him. Now, having listened to that clip we listened to before about like Clinton going and wagging his finger at the Russians, like it makes sense that Bush was taking this line of argument because he's basically saying like oh this is what the democrats are doing at this point is so, like they're going to russia and like telling them what they should do and he's like as a republican i don't think that that's right yeah because like small government la 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 yeah, proceeds to do it for eight years but well per of course like yeah so this is just just before 9 11 basically yeah yeah he does a little bit of a 180 on that uh, but <laughs> but um yeah that just goes to show that it's all talk <laughs> So Bush is elected president, and then shortly thereafter, he does the inside job. Is this you talking about 9-11? Yeah. Is that just how you introduce 9-11? Oh my god. Not funny? Yes, it is. <laughs> Let our listeners decide. We're going to be playing different clips from this interview, but this is the first of those where Barbara Walters interviewed Putin shortly after 9-11. The video itself says in July, but that can't possibly be with the content of it. The inauguration of Vladimir Putin was celebrated a year and a half ago with decidedly post-communist pomp and circumstance. He is only the second elected president of the new Russian Federation. Boris Yeltsin was the first. Putin's administration is committed to massive changes in the way Russia is governed, does business, and deals with the outside world. Putin is now one of the most powerful men in the world, but he is little known in America. He and President Bush seem to have connected with each other in ways that surprise most pundits and may have surprised them as well. President Putin has been preparing for next week's summit meeting in his Kremlin office, where I met with him before our interview. It's my great privilege. Nice to meet you. It's in what Russians call Building Number One of the Kremlin, a former palace of the czars that is two centuries old but was renovated during the Yeltsin administration. 
Putin has pledged support to President Bush in the war against terrorism. He is allowing Russian airspace to be used for American cargo flights to back up our military campaign and has offered to help in search and rescue operations and the sharing of intelligence. Behind the forbidding walls of the Kremlin, I met with the remarkably open Vladimir Putin. Mr. President, you were in your office and saw on television the attack on the World Trade Center. What did you think? What did you feel when you saw it? It was a usual working day, but I had very mixed feelings. First of all, it might seem a little bit strange, but I had the feeling of guilt for this tragedy. We had talked about the possible threats to the United States, to other countries, but we're not able to determine who, where, and how they can strike. And this was the first feeling I had, the feeling of anger, and to some extent the feeling of guilt. But at the same time, I understood quite well what the American people and the American leadership felt at that time. I know that when you met with President Clinton, you warned them about the bin Laden problem, and you have said that you were ignored and that surprised you. Did you feel guilty that you hadn't told us more so that we would have been better prepared? I wouldn't want to go into any assessments of my colleagues, including the former president of the United States, because he was in a very difficult situation. But even at that time, we certainly were counting on a more active cooperation in combating international terrorism. I don't know whether it would have been possible to prevent these strikes on the United States by the terrorists, but it was a pity that our special services didn't get the information on time and warn the American people and the American political leadership about the tragedy that came to pass. President Bush said that you were the first uh, world leader to telephone him. He was very grateful for that. What did you say to him when you telephoned? I expressed our solidarity with the American people. I said that Russia itself suffered terrorist blows and explosions in the city of Moscow as well. And perhaps I understood better than many people what the American people and American president felt, and that the American people understand that in this dire moment in time, they are not alone. After the events of September 11th, you seem to have made a strategic and historic choice to become much closer to the West, to the United States. This could be a risk for you here at home where not everybody wants you to be that close. Why did you do it? I may tell you right now something that may sound quite unexpected to you. This is a choice that Russia made for itself quite a long time ago. Unfortunately, it was not noticed by everybody, but after September 11th, it was impossible not to notice it. And I believe that the tragic events of September 11th opened our eyes to this and underscored the fact that if we want to be protected, we should be together. Is the Cold War over? Probably it was over a long time ago. There can be no doubt about the fact that the Cold War is over. So I think that that's a good setup for just like, and then there's like this brief period of time where post 9-11 where it's like Russia and America fight terrorism together. And then on the other side, then we have Bush doing this thing where he's like inspecting Putin's soul and determining that it's good and healthy. Yeah. So the first thing is Lily's just going to read a brief thing from a transcript of an event. Yeah, it's a transcript of the Bush-Putin summit. It's was published in November 16th, 2001. So basically, like, yeah, just after 9-11, the, the budding relationship, the budding Bush-Putin anti-terrorism relationship, 
they are meeting in Crawford, Texas. Yeah, so basically Bush is like, oh, I just wanted to bring you to Texas and see like this lovely place and these real Americans, da da da. Putin talks about how it's like such an honor to be with like this like honest man and see like the real people because the real people of the country don't live in like in the capital or in the big cities, but like in these like little towns. So anyway, they're having their little, they're having this moment where they're both like, we are the presidents of big countries. Big countries and we like the provinces. <laughs> and we know where the real people are. So then there's this question given to them, in what ways has this summit helped bring Russia and the US closer together? And Bush answers, well, in order for countries to come together, the first thing that must happen is leaders must make up their mind that they want this to happen. And the more I get to know President Putin, the more I get to see his heart and soul, and the more I know we can work together in a positive way. And so anytime leaders can come together and sit down and talk about key issues in a very open and honest way, it will make relations stronger in the long run. Now we're going to listen to a clip. I'll answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country. Uh, and I appreciated so very much the frank dialogue. There was no kind of diplomatic chit-chat trying to throw each other off balance. There was uh, a straightforward dialogue. And that's the beginning of a very constructive relationship. Um, I wouldn't have invited him to my ranch if I didn't trust him. Wouldn't let him ride my horse if I didn't trust him. That was clearly after the Crawford bonding where they were just like, we're going to go jogging together in the extreme heat and like barbecue. Or men. Okay, and then in the Barbara Walters interview, she actually asked Putin about this line. Because I guess even at the time, people were like, Psh, that's ridiculous. It's funny that he says he's trustworthy and like that's like the press right now. Their biggest thing is he's this like cold, heartless, soulless KGB spy (laughs) who you can't trust because he's genetically like good at at predisposed to tricking people. Snakey. I'm a snake. All right. Ready? Next week, you will meet again with President Bush. The first time you two met, President Bush said that he looked into your eyes and got, quote, a sense of your soul. Some people smiled when he said that. What do you think he saw in your soul? Well, it's difficult for me to say what he saw in my soul. But those who smiled in response to his words on hearing him say that, well, there's one thing I can say about this. I believe it is not accidental that he, not they, became president of the United States. He sees better and deeper and understands the problems more accurately. And the fact that today the international coalition is successful is also thanks to President Bush. I'm convinced that he's a solid partner. We can argue about some problems, disagree about things, but I noticed that if he agrees with something, if he says yes, he actually pushes the question down to resolution. And we assess this quite positively, which is indicative of the fact that we can do business with this man. And he lives up to the agreements that he reaches. If he says he will do something, he does it. Yes. Yes, exactly. I hear you do, too. Yes, there is. I'm trying. What a humble man. He really does that humble voice, which he also did with Oliver Stone. He's continued that. He's had his changes, but he has that, like, humble, like, quiet voice. Yeah. Which you can't hear because this guy over is talking over him, but... <laughs> that rude man keeps interrupting him in English. All right, so we're getting close to the end, folks. So now do you want to introduce the missile business? 
Oh my God, was wait Bush was president twice? Yes. Jesus. Okay. Basically, <laughs> Jesus. Basically, Bush and Putin were presidents together for eight years. So during this eight years of of them both being president, the thing they disagreed about was over basically like placing defense missiles. And this started out like very early on in the first year of president their presidencies. There's an anti-ballistic missile treaty between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, like it started in the 70s. And basically the position is that Bush wanted to withdraw from that um, and Putin wanted to not. He wanted to keep it going. And, and Bush was like, it's outdated. The Cold War's over. You know, like what they want, what Bush wants to build, supposedly like in a sort of like move against the middle east like in a a protective move is what's called like defense it's like defense missiles but it sounds like it's something sort of passive but it's not one area of disagreement between the two presidents is the thorny issue of ballistic missiles president bush wants to set up an anti-missile defense system a modern version of ronald reagan's star wars plan but setting up the system would violate a 30-year-old treaty the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty between the two countries. President Bush has said the treaty is outdated. Mr. Putin insists the ABM treaty is vital to international security. From reports, it looks as if there may be uh, an agreement on the reduction of nuclear weapons when you and President Bush meet. But there is still the great disagreement over the ABM treaty. Uh, You want it to continue. President Bush wants to scrap it and uh, build a missile defense system. How do you think these two conflicting points of view can be reconciled? What do you see as the compromise? Well, it's somewhat difficult for me to talk about this with certainty, but I should say the compromise can only be found as a result of very intense negotiations. But as to the offensive and defensive arms, yes, I think that in that context we could reach quite quickly mutual agreements. Anyway, our position in this is quite flexible. We believe that the ABM Treaty of 1972 is important, essential, effective, and useful, but we have a negotiating platform starting from which we could reach agreements. At least I hope so. Can you give us any hint? Well, first of all, the ABM Treaty of 1972 already has a potential for developing defensive systems. There are other provisions in the treaty based on which we could find common approaches. And anyway, experts believe that based on those approaches, we could be able to formulate terms and conditions on the basis of the existing treaty without violating its substance. So it could be accommodated in some way to allow the president to also have a missile defense system. Well, the position of your president is also evolving. His view is not fixed. So what's the next thing we're going to play? The Democracy Now! clip. So very early on in their presidencies, Bush went through with that. and With um, withdrawing, you mean, right? Yeah, basically like in December 2001, so just a little bit after the clips we've been playing, Bush withdrew from the treaty, as the U.S. loves to do with their treaties. Now we're going to play a clip um, from an episode of Democracy Now! where they talk about this withdrawal and like the implications of it. Okay. President Bush yesterday abandoned one of the most important arms control agreements of the last three decades by announcing that the United States is pulling out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty with Russia so Bush can pursue his plans for a so-called missile defense. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin said, we consider it a mistake, but admitted there was little Russia could do to prevent the U.S. from leaving the treaty. Bush formally notified Russia and three former Soviet republics that the U.S. will withdraw from the pact in six months after Russia insisted that the U.S. could not continue with tests for so-called missile defense without violating the treaty. It's the first time in more than half a century that the United States has renounced a major arms control agreement. The ABM Treaty, which the United States and the former Soviet Union negotiated in 1972, prohibits development, testing, and deployment of strategic missile defense systems, including components based in the air, at sea, or in space. It's based on the proposition that without missile shields, the threat of mutual annihilation prevents either country from launching an attack. Bush said the U.S. needed to leave the treaty, which he says is outdated, to build a missile shield that could protect the country from ballistic missile threats from so-called rogue states. Well, we're joined in our studio now by Bill Hartung, who's a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and author of And Weapons for All. Welcome Thanks. to the War and Peace Report. So we have what, yet another addition to a long trail of broken treaties. And uh, I'm just wondering... How are they going to sell this one to the American public? Because I've heard it characterized as trying to shoot a pencil down with a toothpick from out of, out of space. Is this going to work? Uh, who is it really designed for? Are the Chinese correct in saying that it's uh, directed uh, at them? Uh, well, that's certainly the intent of the hardliners in the administration. Uh, I think to call it a defense system at all is, is sort of a misnomer. I, I think really to the extent that this thing has any purpose at all, it's to preserve U.S. dominance militarily so that if they intervene, for example, in North Korea and North Korea has a ballistic missile that they could fire at U.S. forces or, you know, that could reach the U.S., which they certainly don't have now, uh, they'd have another way to, to take that out. Likewise, if they want to coerce China over issues like the Taiwan issue, if they're maintaining thousands of nuclear weapons plus a multi-tiered missile shield at a time when China at the moment only has 20 uh, long-range warheads that can reach the United States. Um, they feel that'll give them leverage. Uh, and, and so I think to the extent that there's a military purpose, that's what it's about. It's not about protecting us from uh, you know, North Korea launching a missile and hitting Nebraska. And the thing that's amazing, though, is how little progress they've made. Uh, they, ha they had to admit under pressure from the Union of Concerned Scientists that when they do these tests, uh, the mock warhead has a little beacon on it that emits a signal. It says, here I am, here I am, here I am. <laughs> and they had to admit that earlier in the year, but they said, well, but, you know, that's only for the first phase, and then, of course, it homes in on its own. Well, it ends up, it gets within 400 yards, and it's actually closer at that point to the warhead than to the decoy. So it's sort of like, you know, if you launched a missile from Seattle and you were trying to hit something on 14th Street, so you'd guide it to about 20th or 18th Street, and then say, I'll just go down Fifth Avenue, it's right there. That's essentially all they've accomplished so far. Uh, so I think a lot of this really has to do with this long-term vision they have of wanting to militarize space, uh, of wanting to get away from uh, arms control treaties and have a more unilateral approach. So, so they're taking a huge risk, but they're trying to paper it over with all this rhetoric about being friendly with the Russians, and uh, they're talking about having uh, talks with China about this. But, but essentially, this has been the agenda of the right wing of the Republican Party, people like Donald Rumsfeld from the beginning. And it's yet another example where Colin Powell has had a, you know, a vaguely sane idea which has been ruled out of order uh, because he wanted to continue discussions with Russia about nuclear reductions and about maybe amending the treaty instead of just throwing it out the window. 
the Bush administration is really not going to have a lot of leverage because they basically are now saying agreements don't matter. Every country's just got to do what they think uh, makes sense for their, their security. So it's, it's a huge uh, gamble that he's taken. And I think it's no mistake that he decided to do it at what he views as the height of his popularity uh, during this war in Afghanistan. The fact that he released the bin Laden tapes the same day that he uh, uh, you know, made this decision, I, I think he's hoping to just kind of get through this and, and take the heat. And, and hopefully it won't be an issue uh, when, uh, God forbid, he tries to get reelected. Those are the voices of 2000, 2001, folks. Goodbye now. Goodbye now. <laughs> but actually, goodbye now. Is there anything else? No, I think I think we're good. Yeah, we don't do conclusions, right? No, no. So we're just going to let those voices dangle for you. Trust me when I say nothing's in my way. That's the show. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. Sign up for our newsletter at She's in Russia.com and check out our new website that our dear, dear friend and friend of the show, Grace, made for us. And What's the difference between your friend and the friend of the show? We will see you next week. Go, go.